Welcome to Politics 2020 War Room. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Coming up on the show, we have Christy Numbers Harvey and our back page. James Carville is down in Louisiana, and our guest today is William Cohn, a three-term Republican senator from Maine, and then he was Bill Clinton's defense secretary. But before that, Bill Cohn was a freshman congressman on the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. He became one of the key figures in listening to, studying, and then making the case for impeachment against Richard Nixon, despite warnings that it would end his political career as a Republican. And I believe, Bill, you even got death threats uh, Oh, yeah, back I, then. I got a lot of uh, death threats. My family did as well. Uh, and don't forget, it was, a, it was a different time then, but the passions were still pretty deep. There was a bomb threat one night uh, where we were holding a hearing, and we ended up evacuating the Rayburn building, and uh, I ended up in the basement of the Longworth building with the great historian Teddy White. Uh, as they tried to clear the the, the building from the uh, alleged bomb, there was no bomb found, but that was the kind of thing that was going on back then. But that was the that was the environment. But the environment today is a lot is a lot different. The political environment. It I is. Mean, some of the threats are. I mean, back then there was a sense that both sides uh, study. I remember you telling me once that the Nixon defenders, you know, principally Charles Wiggins, really made a strong, compelling case and made the other side make it. This time. That did not appear to be the case. No, uh, Chuck Wiggins was one of the finest lawyers that uh, I've ever dealt with and a very principled lawyer. I think I've told you the story that when I cast the vote to break a tie uh, to allow uh, a letter to go out, a second letter to go out to uh, compel uh, President Nixon to turn over the tapes, uh, Chuck leaned over uh, to me. All bedlam had broken loose. He leaned over and whispered in my ear and people thought he was chastising me. He actually said, Bill, you're going to come under a lot of pressure. Just be sure to keep your cool. And that was great coming from someone who was the best and strongest defender of the president. And that's the kind of man he was. So why is it so different today? It's different now because uh, we're more tribal than ever before. It's different that uh, the world of social media is totally uh, unfiltered, uncensored. Uh, and the hate that comes through the uh, social media is pretty intense. And you have a president who's stoking uh, fear and hatred and identifying members of uh, Congress that, he, that are critical of him uh, as being unpatriotic, uh, who hate America. In doing so, he's uh, putting a target on their backs uh, because of the anger that's out there. People can walk around uh, with AK-47s now. And it's a different uh, environment in which uh, the tribalism has intensified to the point where um, Republicans don't talk and uh, to Democrats and vice versa, and they see each other as enemies. And that's something that uh, we did not experience. But also, um, sure, everything has changed. The Republican Party has really changed. I mean, you and Tom Railsback and Caldwell Butler and Hamilton Fish, yeah. uh, it, it's, there, there was no chance from the beginning it seemed to me, maybe this is unfair, but that anybody was going to go because either of the polarization you talked about or fear. Well, there was strong pressure. Uh, I suspect there's always going to be strong pressure uh, when something of this import, uh, when you're talking about impeaching the president of the United States, uh, the, the tendency is the motivation is to rally behind your president. And uh, the cry was frequently, uh, he's He's our president, right or wrong. And I would say, no, no, he's our president when he's right. 
uh, but he can't be wrong and have our support. Um, and, and so there is always strong pressure to support the leader of the party. In this particular case, I felt I was acting as a lawyer. I had been practicing, prosecuting cases, defending cases, and my focus was not political. It was legal, and it was focused upon the language in the Constitution, and that's, that was the only thing it was going to, uh, that I was going to follow. Did the Intelligence Committee and others make the case this time of abuse of power and contempt of Congress? Oh, I think they've made it uh, with very clear and convincing evidence uh, to look at how uh, the president set out to achieve this result of having uh, the president of Ukraine uh, uh, announce publicly he was going to investigate Joe Biden and his son. Uh, I think uh, it's very clear, and it's more than one phone call. The president and his supporters are saying, it's just a phone call, and you can read that either way. And the answer is no. Uh, it's not just a phone call. It's several months of trying to find a way to get around the established experts in order to carry out something that was fundamentally illegal. Uh, and so he removed uh, Ambassador Ivanovich. He smeared her, pulled her back home, even though she'd done nothing wrong. He put in place his own uh, uh, political supporter as ambassador to the uh, EU to work with Rudy. So Rudy became his uh, attorney circumventing the established um, experts, professionals uh, in the field and to get around them. And, and, and so uh, it's not just a phone call. Oh, I think the phone call was damning. I think just looking at that reconstruction or the partial reconstruction of that phone call, it's clear as glass uh, that what he was seeking to do. And so I think they made the case. I would have hoped they would broaden it a bit because there is a pattern there's a pattern that is very clear. When uh, Sally Yates uh, came and, and uh, to the administration said, you know, uh, General Flynn, Lieutenant General Flynn's got a problem. He's been dealing with uh, not only the Turks but also the Russians and shouldn't be appointed. Uh, they fired Sally Yates. Uh, when Comey wouldn't pledge fealty to the president and wouldn't drop the case against uh, uh, General Flynn, fire Comey. McCabe followed out the door. So you can see what the president was doing, putting people who will uh, only be loyal to him under all circumstances. And those who are not professed loyalty, do not profess a loyalty to him, they've got to go. So uh, he has the power to do that, but you can't do it in pursuit of an illegal scheme. And I think it was clearly illegal what he did in holding out that money. Uh, to the Ukrainians uh, before they get a White House visit. And it's, isn't it ironic that here's Ukraine, our so-called ally who's waging a war against Russia, and on both occasions, after the firing of Comey and after the release uh, of this report on impeachment articles, the Russians show up in the Oval Office. Uh, you've got the Russian foreign minister and the Russian yeah. ambassador right after yep. uh, the firing of Comey saying, this Russia thing's off me now. Uh, and then this time we have the filing of the articles of impeachment. Guess, uh, guess who's in the office? The Russians. The Russians. Right. This is my uh, observation, a question for the secretary. We have all of this. The, the, the facts around this are really not in dispute. I mean, that's, it's no, there's no counterfactual that he was on the call. He held up the aid in return for them to announce uh, the investigation of a political opponent. All right. Th that is the... 178th piece of highly disturbing information that we have received about this president. Yet, it seems like 42% of the country are just unshakable. And no one knows what drives that for sure. 
I think what's causing it uh, is that um, we're more of a – I think the president has some more of a cult following. I think he's a cult figure. I think he uh, is really – he manifests – uh, what is the sentiment in this country on the part of those who feel that they have been victimized by the system, who feel that they have been the, have lost out as a result of globalization, immigration, and that he has uh, taken the podium to say, I'm the only one who cares about you. And the irony is that he is in a man in a golden cage uh, or a gilded cage uh, saying that uh, I'm your leader to all the poor and the middle class people. I think it's totally ironic, but they have uh, bought into this that uh, he is fighting for them. He's putting, quote, America first and doesn't uh, care about all of the established figures, all of the uh, treaties that we have. He wants to know why we're in South Korea, why are we in Japan, why are we in Germany? Well, there's a reason why, uh, and there's a reason we've been keeping the peace for the last 70 years. But he feels that everything is a bilateral negotiation that only he can negotiate. And 40% of the people or more have bought into that and see uh, him as the savior of their lives and their future, and the Democrats uh, as uh, being on the opposite side. So this is something that, that I've noticed, and I, I started noticing it. So a teacher at LSU, and of course I'm fanatical about climate, and oftentimes the students will come see me and say, look, I, Professor Carville, I think you've, obviously the climate is getting warmer, and obviously we have a good reason why. I just hate the people out of saying that. I don't want to be part of that secular anti-gun whatever it, it, it so some of it is they just anti nancy pelosi or hillary clinton or maxine waters or or you name it bernie sanders it's, adam schiff now yeah adam schiff so so what's motivating a lot of these people is they just don't want people like that to win and what the thing they like about trump is he beats the people that are he he irritates the people that they hate and it's, it's this kind of stupid way to go through life but i suspect that's a pretty a lot of people that lead their lives like that well uh, he's bullying everybody he demeans everybody he tries to reduce uh, those who are critical of him to something less than being human uh, they are scum anyone who disagrees with them are scum I mean, I don't think we've ever heard a president of the United States engage in this kind of conduct in this kind of speech, uh, which is really doublespeak. It's Orwellian. Uh, it's, uh, it takes every word that has a specific meaning and turns it on its head. And so if he is criticized for being a bully, he calls Adam Schiff a bully. And so everything that is uh, really directed to him, he actually reverses it and, and holds up a shield and it bounces back and he uses it as a sword. Uh, so uh, it, we have demean politics. We have demeaned the process. We degrade uh, individuals. Uh, we call them names. We give them nicknames that are certainly not complimentary. Uh, we uh, indulge in the uh, reduction in the, um, the humanness and the human beings to something less than uh, human beings. So I, I find it astonishing that we have a president who acts like this and talks like this. Uh, I, I go around the world, and frankly, most people are baffled. Uh, they don't understand how the American people are so solidly behind that kind of conduct. And imagine if, uh, if Barack Obama or Bill Clinton got up uh, uh, on a podium and called somebody an SOB or BS and used that kind of language or had engaged in paying off uh, you know, a, a porn star. And there's some real interesting parallels. You may recall that Spiro Agnew, 
uh, he was the former governor of Maryland who had, was taking kickbacks from uh, contract from contracts uh, construction contracts. He, when he got to be vice president, he was still getting payoffs uh, while he was in the VP's office. Here you had President uh, Trump uh, have his attorney Michael Cohen making payoffs uh, to uh, two women, and he's actually signing checks to make those payoffs while he's president of the United States. So you've got all of these really double standards uh, that have uh, the Republicans have latched onto, and I say they have done so uh, out of fear or out of complicity. They either fear him or they agree with him. But I dare say Barack Obama would not be in the White House if he had done any one of the things that President uh, Trump has done. Going back to the Mueller report, and I, I wish, I, I wish the um, House Judiciary Committee had at least had language that embraces the Mueller report because then you see the pattern. Then you see that when bad news is brought to him, he fires the people who bring him the bad news. When they tell him he can't do something, he gets rid of the people who tell him he can't do something. Ivanovich, uh, um, uh, Bill Taylor, and others uh, try to put up a screen to say, Mr. President, this, you shouldn't do this, you can't do this, it's illegal. And in his mind, there is nothing that he can do that's illegal. Now, this is why we talk about the rule of law, why it's so important that we, not just words, if you don't have the rule of law, you have the law of rule. Uh, and I think the American people are not thinking this through, that what sets us apart is that we believe that nobody's above the law, nobody falls below its protections. We don't always measure up to that. But if we don't hold the president accountable for actual misdeeds, for abusing his power, for using that power to uh, diminish people, to uh, put targets on their backs uh, verbally, uh, from uh, trying to extort or bribe a foreign nation, a friend who's desperate need of uh, funds, say, yeah, you get it when. And I know that Adam Schiff was criticized for the way he kind of summarized uh, the, uh, the incident, but the way it is, uh, President uh, Trump has said, as candidate, said, Russia, are you listening? And Russia was listening. Four hours later, they were into uh, the Democratic National Headquarters. He said, China, are you listening? So he's now more open. I said, I do it with everybody. And then he said to um, Ukraine, you'd better be listening because if you're not listening, you're not getting your White House meeting and you're not getting your money. And so you can see the pattern from what Mueller had laid out. Uh, and you need to at least make that case uh, before the Senate to say it's not just a letter. It's not just a phone call. It's the whole process. Better call Michael Cohen. Better call Rudy. Better call Saul. You know, it's a whole notion that he never leaves his fingerprints directly on it. He gets his lawyers to do the work like Michael Cohen. He gets Rudy to do his work. And so he's always trying to circumvent the law or break it but have no responsibility for it. Or if he is held responsible, he says, I have the power. You can't indict me. You can't even investigate me. I have soul and absolute power. Well, it is stunning. Bill, You it moves to the Senate now. Uh, it's a place that you know well. You served for 18 years. It's different today than it was uh, 23 years ago. But do you, do you have any hope that there'll be at least a couple Republicans who could say, wait a minute, uh, this, yeah. this is just not acceptable. I am really disappointed in seeing what's happening uh, to our political process. Um, I never thought I would see the day that the Senate or the House would give up its power. 
uh, and the power of the purse, the power to challenge the president, the power to investigate uh, the presidency, the checks and balances. And I have been just astonished to see how silent uh, the Republicans are in the uh, – certainly in the House but also in the Senate. Now, many can say, well, I've got to hear the evidence first. But there are a lot of them saying no, they know what they're going to do. But where is the responsibility to actually check – abuses that they see that are in plain sight. This is not, they're not doing more investigation. This is out there in plain sight. They know that there are key witnesses from Rudy to Pompeo uh, to others who have refused. Don McGahn. John who, Bolton. John Bolton uh, have refused to testify because the president said no. Uh, they know uh, that this is critical evidence, and yet not one of them is saying, well, we'll subpoena them. We, the Senate, will subpoena them. They're now talking about having no witnesses at all. Let's just run this thing through, have them summarize uh, what they have found, and then we vote. Um, do I think some uh, Republicans will, uh, will vote against that kind of a procedure? Yes. Will it be uh, more than a handful? No. Well, look, it, right now, you know, he has the support of overwhelming support of Republican voters. And, you know, it's, it's a lot, I guess, it's, it, they'd say, look, it's a lot to ask of us to vote to convict him when, you know, you had your chance in front of the Judiciary Committee, you didn't, you didn't convince anybody. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in the business and you're asking us to do something our voters don't want us to do. Well, if you're going to, you can't convict somebody if you don't uh, have witnesses and there'd be the, the president's holding them back. So uh, I think there's a pretty clear inference that you draw from that. He, number one, he won't disclose taxes from the beginning. They're under audit. I think that's nonsense. Uh, I don't care what the IRS says about your taxes. Uh, what have you filed under oath to say this is what my, my taxes are? I don't care what the IRS may say you need, you, add, you need to pay more or you don't need to have pay so much. But at least say what you said under oath, uh, what you filed that year. So I, I think it's just been a policy. Uh, I'm gonna, I say I'm transparent, but I'm not transparent. I say I'm going to reveal everything. So it's, it's doublespeak. It's, it's Orwellian. Uh, everything uh, that you say uh, is contradicted by what you do. Right. And everything you say is true plus a hundred more. It, but the issue is he maintains this unbelievable level of support among Republicans, which mm-hmm. has the effect of just blocking Republican lawmakers from doing anything other than supporting him. And it, it, that's just where the party is now. Well, James, let me just interject for a second, because uh, I went back and looked at some of the data back in 74 up until the July, late July, right. Nixon had the support, not as deep, not as solid as Trump maybe, but support of the vast majority of Republicans. Right. And what happened back then, it's different than today, is that those two weeks in late July, that changed public opinion. Absolutely. When the July, uh, the June 23rd tape finally came out, and that was the tape in which the president was telling Dean to get the CIA to uh, – interrupt the um, FBI investigation. That's what turned the tide. That's when Chuck Wiggins said, I can't defend you anymore. That's when Barry Goldwater said, you're going to get uh, convicted in the Senate. They went down after saying, this is the last straw. We defended you all of this time. This is a clear case of what you've done. We've got it on tape, and therefore they changed. But up until that time, they would he he probably would have been um, impeached in the House, but he— in all likelihood, would never have been convicted. Yeah. Would you go? You have been very high, I believe, on Adam Schiff. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, would you make him, would you have, if you were Pelosi, would you make him the lead uh, prosecutor uh, in the Senate? Or would you consider using a staff member like Dan Goldman? Or does it matter a lot? Um I would t- take the best lawyer. Uh, if it's uh, a staff a member, I would use uh, uh, Goldman. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm uh, pretty high in terms of Adam Schiff's uh, lawyerly uh, uh, manner in terms of he's very smart. Uh, he uh, is a gifted interrogator. Um, he also carries uh, a lot of weight in terms of uh, the opposition to him. Uh, the, the critics uh, against him are pretty high on the Republican side. So uh, Speaker Pelosi may decide she wants somebody else. To, but I had to pick – if I had to pick a member, uh, I would pick him. Uh, I know they're talking about uh, having the only independent in the, uh, the House right now uh, uh, become the manager. But maybe there are two. Maybe there are two or three. Wow. I don't know. You know, I can't, I can't let this interview go without asking you one question, Mr. Secretary. And, that, and I've always been fascinated by the hold – that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain still has on the state of Maine. I, I've, never see, I've never seen one person in a state that commands so much reverence, respect, a little bit. You could just tell us a little bit about the relationship of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and Maine, because I, I think it's a sight to behold whenever you talk to someone from Maine. They're, he was the president of some obscure college, too. <laughs> I got, he, yeah. Well, he's revered. Uh, in fact, I had, when I was at the Pentagon, I had a very large portrait hung uh, in the outer office so that everybody who came in uh, saw that, uh, that uh, picture of Joshua on his horse. And uh, even those from the South paid uh, uh, reverence to him because of his courage uh, and uh, absolute uh, undaunted uh, will to, uh, to prevail. He was from the small town of Brewer, which is exactly one mile across the bridge uh, from where I grew up in Bangor. Uh, he was a professor of rhetoric uh, at Bowdoin College. He had never had any military experience. Both he and his brother joined uh, uh, the northern forces and fought. And at Gettysburg, uh, he is given credit for having turned around uh, this, the Civil War with his stand uh, where he ran out of ammunition and uh, he was about to be overrun. And he uh, just said, uh, OK, no ammunition, but fix bayonets. And they charged down the hill and, uh, and won that battle. Um, and then he went on. Uh, he was, had been wounded several times. One time he was taken home to die. Uh, and he stayed there for several months, and then his parents wanted him to stay, and he got up out of his uh, sickbed, went back and fought again. Uh, and eventually, uh, after the war was over, became president of Bowdoin College and then governor of Maine. Uh, so he uh, is quite a, a hero to, uh, to all of the soldiers. Southerners as well uh, remember that. And what they remember about him, in addition to his uh, warrior uh, status and capability was when he was picked to uh, accept the surrender of uh, the Confederates at Appomattox. And uh, when uh, the Southern soldiers laid down their arms, he had all of uh, his uh, forces salute them and say, uh, pay tribute to them as warriors. And that is as much uh, uh, that's in the minds of those who fought on the, on the side of the South, uh, that he was uh, truly a man of, uh, of great honor. Boy, what a wonderful story to end. Another distinguished Another distinguished graduate of Bowdoin College <laughs> is William Cohen. Bill, this has been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you, oh, sir. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, James. We needed, we needed a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua Chamberlain provides it. Great. Thank you.
And now for the segment that everyone waits for every week. Christy Numbers Harvey. Take it away, Christ. I love when you call me numbers. It makes me feel like a 1930s bookie. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm running numbers down at the local bar. Love it. All right, I got two numbers for you guys this week. Um, the first is 25 million. Uh, this is the amount of funding that's uh, going to be included in this year's congressional spending bill that is going for gun violence research. And it may not seem like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but this is the first spending on gun violence research in more than 20 years uh, after that longstanding provision that uh, basically blocked this. So I just wanted to ask you guys, how much of a victory is this in your eyes? This, as Joe Biden would say, is a big effing deal. I mean, it really is. Only $25 million. But what the gun lobby has done for decades is they not they haven't just blocked you know sensible gun legislation like background checks and assault weapons ban. They've blocked any kind of research that the CDC or anyone else does on the on the correlation between guns, violence, and deaths. And they've done it for a very good reason, Christy. They've done it because they know what it'll show. Yeah. So we can't even research it. And this, so therefore, this is a, whatever cliche you want to use, this is a start, 25 million, terribly important. One other point I'd make is, I'll tell you what else it says. At the end of a session with this president who doesn't believe in a thing, if you're a Democrat, you can get a lot of stuff through uh, because this is the kind of stuff that I'm not even sure Trump or anybody around him knows knows it happened. But it's happened and it's a good deal. Do we need more research, though? I mean, don't we know what we know about gun violence? I mean, how much more research do we need to do? Well, it's, there's a ton of private research that goes on. I mean, it, it all shows the same thing. So I, this is very symbolic that you get the 25 million from the government and hopefully you'll keep getting this money. But it's pretty much like climate. You could, all the studies are going to show some variation, slight variation on the essential truths. And I, I think that over a period of time and as demographics change, it can have a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. James is right. There are other studies. Why, why this is important, however, is most of the other studies are studies that either have been supported by gun control groups mm-hmm. or they're academic studies, which the you know, the crazies can say, uh, you know, is it wrong? You know, when you get something from the CDC during the Republican administration, you say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, that's just some kind of left-wing conspiracy. At least the case is harder. Yeah, that's true. True. All right, I'm going to quickly go into my second number then, uh, and that number is 400. Uh, this is the number of America's largest corporations uh, that paid an average federal tax rate of about 11% last year. 11%. That's half of the official rate that was just established under the 2017 tax law, uh, which was 21%, which dropped from 35. So it's all the way down to 11. So here's my actual question on this. Um, you've got people paying 11 on average, co- corporations paying 11 on average. You hear some paying down to zero. And then you've got some of these Democratic candidates who are uh, proposing giant tax hikes. Is there no golden mean here? Is there no in-between? Well, of course there's an in-between because eventually something is going to happen. It's not going to stay there and it's not going to go to 75%. So it's some, somewhere between the two. The, the Democrats need to make a more sustained effort is who, who made money in this recovery? And the truth of the matter is this recovery has not touched probably two-thirds of the people in the United States. And and all of the fruits of the the recovery have gone to the obvious people who the fruits of everything have gone to in the past. And, you know, I thought that, you know, Elizabeth Warren's campaign started out very much on that. And I was hopeful that that would be what she would be remembered for and what voters would think about her. Unfortunately, she's now trying to 
justify a single payer of open borders or whatever else is. I, I think that was a great lost opportunity. Yeah, I I agree. And uh, taking the corporate rate to twenty one percent, that's more than they asked for. It really was. Uh, it was just a payoff. It was absurd. And I would raise it, but I tell you, more important than what the rate is mm-hmm. is to broaden that base. Do away with all, the, the, uh, many at least, of those loopholes that just they don't serve any economic pur- purpose, and they uh, many of them are just payoffs to contributors. So while I would certainly raise the corporate rate. I don't know what to thirty percent, thirty two percent. If you broaden that base and you do away with a lot of those loopholes, you can raise a lot of money and create a fair system and give some of that money in return to the people that James pointed out have not benefited from this recovery at all. From Hunt's mouth to God's ear, I guess that's our plan. Wow. All right. Those are our numbers this week, fellas. Uh, hope that you uh, learned something new. I, whenever we're around numbers, Harvey. Whatever it is, <laughs> they stick in our mind. They're easy to understand. <laughs> They're important. They're relevant. <laughs> All right, guys, see you next like week. Tr- like a true baseball fan. Yeah. <laughs> Now, James, for the back page, uh, polls can be misinterpreted. There are polls and there are polls. Uh, And Donald Trump still does not do terribly well in polls. But, you know, as you look at it, he seems to be doing a little bit better. He does. And I I think I've seen enough to say there's an upward trend for him. You know, I I generally don't like to react to one. But if you look at the averages, you got to say that. And it might be the economic numbers behind it could be impeachment behind it, I'm not, not exactly sure. Uh, could be the Democrats are demoralized and not answer the phone as much. I, I, I don't know the reason, but I, I am comfortable in saying that he, does, he has had an uptick. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, again, I'm, I'm looking for some of the better polls to come out, but you look at all the others and you put them, you combine them and you say, okay, there's some kind of message here. And most general election polls still show that Biden would beat him in most of the key states, but a few don't show that. So, uh, you know, it's it's a, it, it seems to me it should add to the Democratic concern that we have to not get distracted. We can't do a Jeremy Corbyn, if you will. We have to focus on what will be a winning message to beat this guy because it's not an automatic. That's correct. Then, I, like I said, the U.K. experience is very instructive. And kind of what's happening now is instructive. And I think these voters see that. And I think they're nervous. I, I, I think that they're very, very involved. They don't need us to tell them that. They they have a sense of that. And they have a sense of what their obligation is. Uh, I, so let's see. But they, this thing is going to be is being watched very closely by voters all over the country. This is a very, very high interest, high engaged electorate. It is. And they, uh, as we said a minute ago, if you're a Democrat uh, or you're a Trump-disliking, hating, independent, or Republican, what matters most of all is winning. Uh, so let's see how it evolves. All right, what matters most of all now is we have to go, James, but uh, it's it's been grand, and I'll see you next week. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Be generous. This podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts Happy holidays to everyone. See you next week.